Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Good morning. So we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount together, and we are just now getting to, believe it or not, the sermon proper, up to... Now we've kind of been in an introduction. But the passage we come to today is the key, really, to understanding the the rest of the sermon. If you miss it, you'll be incapable of grasping its message. And it will be truly, if you're listening to Jesus, and by the time you get to the end of this, uh, you know, in chapter 7, you can literally be on the wrong road. Or you could have built your house on a completely wrong foundation. I mean, it's disastrous if you don't get it. So in uh, in this text, we get it. Perhaps you've heard of uh, Virginia Stem Owens. If you've listened to any series or anything on the Sermon on the Mount, usually pastors refer to it. Uh, She was a professor at Texas A&M in the late 80s. Yeah, I know you guys are happy today. Uh, Texas fans, on the other hand, they stayed home, I think. I don't even think they came today. Uh, anyway, she, uh, she wrote an article uh, in the late 80s. She, was a, uh, she's taught, she taught a class on rhetoric, and she asked her students to read the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, respond to it, write something on it. And so she had this article that she wrote called God and Man at Texas A&M. And it was designed to show the results of that reading. And she said, you know, people responded very similarly to what, you know, a couple of responses I'm jotting down from the article. Uh, One person said, I did not like it. Made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Uh, someone else said, this is absurd. How can seeing be adultery? That's the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I ever read. Uh, so she makes the point at the end of it, well, it apparently most of these students had never read the Sermon on the Mount before because they probably would have referred to it very positively until they read it, until they actually read it. And it made them all angry. And she said, finally, people have read it and really understood what Jesus is saying. Because if you're not offended by it, then you haven't read it. Because it's overwhelming. Uh, But I would add, I would say, they missed the interpretive key. Because if you don't get the interpretive key, that sermon will crush you. It will crush you. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has written this big, thick thing on the Sermon on the Mount that I'm very fortunate to to read as we go through this thing. Uh, He says, and I love this, this is in the introduction, read it uh, earlier this summer. He goes, it's a terrible sermon. And it will crush you, he says. He says, if you look at it closely, you'll say, God, save me from this. That's what he says. And so here's the reason. Because the sermon addresses two critical questions humans really want to know. And they're desperate to have answered. Sort of the reason we've titled the series the way we have. What is the good life? And who is a good person? Humans are desperate to have that question answered. They need to have it answered. Not just for themselves. They're trying to answer it for society. And the answer to those questions are literally everything. Everything depends on them. That's why the sermon is so important. I uh, had somebody in our church recommend a book to me for some other reasons, but uh, before I left. 
Um, and I read it. It was called Letting Go of Goodness. Dispel the myth of goodness to find your genuine self. This was one of the hardest reads I've had in a long time. I've, I'm not afraid to read things that I don't, I don't agree with. I'm not afraid to read things that uh, are different opinions of, than mine. Uh, this one was really hard to read because it was so contradictory. I don't know how it got published. It annoyed me at every... I, I, mean, I have written more in this book than all the sermons combined in 26 and a half years. That's how hard it was to read. Uh, so she says this, this writer. She admits that trying to be good is, is essential, is, is essential to being. You, like the question is like all of us want to know that. She admits that. She's a psychologist or therapist. Uh, but she denies the existence of any external good. There's no good thing out there. What your parents taught you, what society taught you, what the world has taught you, that's that's not, what, that's not where good comes from. Uh, she says, you have to find good within yourself. If you're not genuine, you can't be good. This is what she literally argues this uh, in a way that's painful to read. And says, uh, so there's no standard for good or bad. And check, in fact, I'm quoting now. If, you're trying to be, if you try to be good, she says, then that means there's a bad. And that creates pressure and guilt. Guilt is not authentic. I shouldn't do good things I don't want to do. She attempts to argue that there's no external good, and yet throughout the entire book, she's trying to get you to do good. She's contradicting herself at every level. Logically, intellectually, so she says, let good come out of you naturally. If you don't if somebody's pressuring you to do something, if somebody from your parents or, your, or society tells you that's a good thing, but you don't want to do it, that's inauthentic and not genuine. Don't do it. It'll ruin you. That's essentially what she's arguing. And, of course, the whole way through the book I'm saying, how, how does anyone know if they're being authentic? How does anyone know if they're authentic? if what they're authentically wanting to do is good or bad, if there is no standard for good or bad. Is it whatever I want is good? Is I, there was just no clarity. So good and bad don't really exist, although she can't stop from telling you to be good. It's, it's impossible to do. She was taking on the impossible. And I want to say this to you. The people on the hill listening to Jesus, hear this, this is really important, we're thinking the very same thing about Jesus. Wait a minute, Jesus. We have lived in a culture that has jammed law in our, down our throats forever. It sounds like you're saying law does not matter, and we can be in everybody's blood. You're like the hippie, the Palestinian hippie. Everybody's blessed. Come on in. You're loved. Peace, love, and happiness. All over. Write it in the sand. We painted it on our walls in the 70s. It sounds like Jesus. You're saying, don't pay attention to any of those religion fanatics trying to jam law down your throat. that I can have the good life and I can be a good person without the law, without anybody telling me what to do. No externals, just what I'm feeling, be myself. Is that what you're saying, Jesus? Because you just looked at a bunch of people on the hills been rejected by all the lawgivers, and you've told us we can come right on in. Do you hear how they might have heard that from Jesus? And then he's going to say to the scribes and the Pharisees, because they're the religious crowd. They're the kind of people who jammed law down your throat. Who said the only two kinds of people that go to heaven are the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. 
who keep it. The religious ones had nothing on the inside. They didn't care anything about the inside. There was no authentic genuineness at all on the inside. It was all external. So you sort of had two groups Jesus had to deal with. The group of people are thinking, well, maybe we don't need any law. And then a group of people think, oh, that's all you need. That's one of those ways is how you define the good life and who's the good person. Well, which is it? Is being good left up to me? Or is it conformity to some external standard? And listen, Hillside, this is, this is each of our personal crisis. It's society's crisis right now. We cannot get to the bottom of it. So which one is right? Which side is Jesus going to lean on? Or lean toward? Well, this is our task for today, to figure that out. Uh, so let's start in verse 17. And notice, he knows what they're thinking. He knows what the crowd is thinking. They're thinking that maybe he came to abolish the law. Everybody's free. Come on in. Doesn't matter who you are or what you do. That's what they were thinking. Uh, don't worry about the law and the prophets. They're abolished, set aside, basically. No longer apply to any of you. And everybody in that crowd would have gone, that is so radically different than what we've been hearing. But then Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And this would have really thrown them off. What in the world does he mean by that? It's such an important verse. This verse is absolutely critical to understanding the rest of the sermon. So in this single verse, Jesus is claiming to be the only person who has the answer to the question. The law and the prophets, this phrase right here, law and the prophets represents the entire Old Testament. Not just the commandments, the whole Old Testament. That's the, what the phrase refers to in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. That's where you see it. So Jesus is essentially claiming, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. By, by saying I came to fulfill it, I, I am the culmination of it. I am the culmination of biblical and redemptive history and story and text. It all pointed to me. I am not, Jesus is saying, as one historian wrote, abrupt, unnatural, phantom-like appearance. I didn't pop out of nowhere. I am what the Old Testament saw coming. I'm not disconnected from it. I'm, I'm the point of it, is what Jesus is saying, which they needed to hear. I am the point and the explanation of the Old Testament, its laws and prophecies. I am not denouncing or setting it aside or invalidating it. I came to fulfill it. It's all, it has all reached its conclusion in me. The life and ministry of Jesus brings the text, the Old Testament writings, the stories, the prophecies to life. I embody it. And I am now bringing it, this whole Old Testament package, into an, an entire new era of fulfillment. I am its fulfillment. And so, he, because he said that, he says in verses 18 and 19, for truth. 
truly I say to you. This is Jesus. Get this. Until heaven and earth pass away. That's like us saying, till hell freezes over. You know when you use that phrase? Just never going to happen. Not a Yoda or a dot. These are just Hebrew marks and letter that are so small that you, when you write them with a pen, you can hardly distinguish them, but they distinguish letters. And the smallest Hebrew mark you can make with a pen written in the Old Testament will not pass away until another until. All is accomplished. All is fulfilled. Now, uh, essentially what Jesus is saying, it will all, it will all that was said in the Old Testament will become a reality. And I'm it. I am it. So verse 19, therefore, Whoever relaxes or does away with or ignores or disconnects any of the commandments. Now, he's moving, he's shifting just a little bit from just law and the prophets in Old Testament. Now he's getting more to the heart of what they were probably thinking. He's saying, first of all, I'm the point of the whole Old Testament. But now he says the commandments and you teach others to do the same. Anyone who's doing that, because he said, I'm not doing that, is the least in the kingdom. So now all of a sudden he's shifted from a whole new era, the Old Testament law and prophets, to a kingdom era. Yeah, that's me. I'm ushering in a kingdom, a new thing. It's a new era of fulfillment. It's a kingdom. I'm inviting you into this kingdom now. So there's a shift in in. Old and new. Whoever does them, this is Jesus' vision for people who live in the kingdom. They actually do it. And they teach it. So you could see the first part, the people who are least in the kingdom, talking about least and great. This is not to say that it's not really like creating classes within the kingdom. This is a way of saying this isn't, this isn't even what the kingdom stands for if you live like this. It's, it's not even in the kingdom. You want to know who's great in the kingdom is the person who actually does it. Well, the problem is the people on the hill don't do it, and the people with all the law don't do it either. None of them are doing it. Jesus is introducing an a era where people will actually be and do what the law is. So Jesus' point is, neither side is working. <laughs> this side isn't working, you guys on the hill who just hope that there's no laws. That's not going to change you. And all of you who can only think laws and rules, that's not going to change you either. Jesus is slowly separating himself from both sides. Now, uh, but the Old Testament law and the kingdom slowly trying to come together and we're trying to get a feel for what it looks like when the two of them meet. All right? Whatever the law was in the Old Testament, it's going to character, characterize your life differently in the kingdom. Look at, uh, this is what Matthew will say just a few chapters later. For all the prophets in the law, what does that represent? The whole Old Testament prophesied until who? All right, you think about that for just a second. 
Here's your whole Old Testament. The last Old Testament prophet, by the way, even though he's in the New Testament, is John. Then Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of all of this. This is a new era of fulfillment. Now, it was promised. This is not brand new information. It wasn't easily picked up, actually, in the Old Testament. But here's what Jeremiah 31 says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. This is what that is. Jesus represents that new era, the new way. I will make it with the house of Israel and Judah. And here's what it essentially will be. It will be a covenant in which I will put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. So something's different is happening here. Here we had these external rules which we needed, by the way. Human beings needed it. We needed those laws. How would we relate to each other? We couldn't survive without those laws. They're good laws. But they intended far more than they could create, than they could accomplish. They wanted us to be far better than we could be. We couldn't even just keep the external rules that the law had. Just the simple rules. Just give me ten base. If you just think about the, the big ten. There's a whole lot more, but if you just think about the big ten, we're going, we can't even do those. I mean, those ten things have ruined all of us. So then you say, well, then what is Jesus saying? If you can't get rid of this, not one tiny Hebrew mark can be done away with, what's he saying? Because it sounds like we're supposed to be doing all this stuff back here. No, Jesus says, I'm going to bring a whole new dimension to it. I am going to actually embody the full intention of that, Old Testament and the law. So Jesus is essentially going to do two things that I think are really important. And I'm going to try to say them this way. They're just to help us here. Um, number one, Jesus now brings some of the Old Testament law to completion. So scholars struggle to try to figure out what part. This is The reason this is complicated and far more uh, thorny than I'm giving you in a sermon. It's, it's just too much to do in a sermon. But the reason it's thorny is because, well, there are some parts of the law that we're not even doing anymore. So Jesus is saying none of it's going to pass away, and yet some of it has kind of passed away. Like, we don't do the ceremonial laws anymore. Jesus died on a cross. Hebrews told us all those ceremonies they used to do in the Old Testament. We don't do those anymore because he's the fulfillment of them. It's not like they didn't matter. They, they, they had a message they brought to life. Jesus, he died on a cross. When he died on a cross, the ceremonial law, the, the curtain split in half. The tabernacle was wide open. But then you also have civil laws that didn't count anymore because as soon as, Jesus, as soon as Israel crucified Jesus, they ceased to be God's people in the nation. So now the civil laws don't matter either. And Jesus will allude to that later in this sermon when he says, you've always heard, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. I'm telling you something different. So some things come to an end. Other things get radically adjusted, as we're going to see. So a lot, of, a lot of things don't carry over because the reality is here now. 
So some of them get completed by who Jesus is. The second thing is, Jesus has authority to govern the understanding and application of all that Old Testament law. He now says, I'm the one who will help you understand what all that meant. And now you will come to me to understand that. Don't jump here. Come to me to understand that. You come to me, you understand the ceremonial laws aren't there. You come to me, you understand the civil laws don't apply because we're not a nation anymore. We saw that in the People of God series in 1 Peter. Jesus is saying, you come to me, and even some of the moral statements I'm going to adjust. I've had people leave Hillside over this passage. Because if you listen to the, every jot and every tittle, every yoda and dot, they think we ought to be meeting on Saturdays like the Sabbath. Because essentially what they hear Jesus saying is this is what matters, so we've got to go back and listen to everything it says. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, now look at everything through me. Do you see the difference in that? If you don't look at it all through him, you're going to be back here. I mean you're going to have a hard life, really hard life, trying to be a nation that you're not, trying to perform ceremonies that don't have any meaning anymore. By the way, the Sabbath is the only command in the New Testament that's not repeated. That's not repeated in the New Testament. It's the only Old Testament command that's not repeated in the New Testament of the ten. Jesus radically modifies the Sabbath. He, he modifies the Sabbath. You've got to go through and, and hear it. And it becomes something massive. Not just Jesus in the Gospels, but the New Testament writers do something different with it. Don't have time to get into it. I've addressed it before. But it's not the same. Because he has the authority to do that. He has the authority to look at those and tell you. So you don't get to do that. You know, I got an idea about that Old Testament. No, you don't get to do that. He becomes the authority figure. Uh, by the way, he does this with divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. He does this with vows in the Sermon on the Mount. And he does this with retaliation in the Sermon on the Mount. Things get altered because of who he is. They don't get lessened. They get altered because of who he is. And we're going to see why. We're going to see what that means. But the whole rest of chapter 5 is doing that. Jesus is going to say, let me show you what I mean. So the law was only capable of identifying an outward sort of command. You know? And we needed it for sure. It was, again, not unimportant. Very essential, Jesus is saying, it will matter till the end of time. But it had no power to impact the heart. It was inadequate to do that. So Jesus now shows us what the law looks like in a life that's been changed from the inside out because he has a different mission. He's bringing the new covenant to life. So he's going to take those external laws and he's going to do something different to them that impact the people that come into the kingdom far different. So Jesus says to the guy who says, yeah, I think I do want the good life that has no rules. You know, that's all left to my inner inclinations. Jesus is going to tell that guy, You're, it's not going to work. And then to the guy in verse 20, the scribes and the Pharisees in, in our text, which we'll look at in a second, he's going to say, eh, it's not all about rules either. Because look what he says in verse 20. And by the time Jesus gets here, you are, if you're sitting on that hill and you're listening to this, you are. For I tell you, I'm going to tell you something else. I'm going to tell you something else really important, Jesus is saying. Better get this or you're not going to understand the sermon. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious bunch. So at the beginning of the text, the whole text here, he begins, first of all, by addressing the people who are sitting on the hill. By the time he gets done, he's going to tell you, these are the people that just, 
I think I can figure that out myself. I'm just going to go with my inner heart. He blows that, going to blow that out of the water because you don't end up actually doing the law at all. Then he's going to talk to these guys, the guys who think it's only law. So in this short little text, the two ways people approach all of these important questions for humanity are addressed. That's why it's such a pivotal text. There's a whole new standard. When Jesus says these, these guys are not even in the kingdom, that's a real problem for every single one of us rule, you know, rule makers and law, and law lovers. The moment you say, well, I'm a better person, that's why I'm going to heaven, you missed it. You didn't read this verse. That's how most humans live. I think I can find one guy on this planet who's worse than me, and that's going to get me into heaven. Jesus is essentially doing something very mind-blowing here. He's essentially saying every single person on the planet is spiritually bankrupt. Both sides have missed the mark. So what is Jesus doing? Well, let's, let's just look at one thing we can at least talk about today. It'll be teased out over the next few weeks, but let's think about it. And I want to say this is something really important because it, it appears in here that um, this, this whole idea of exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. What does that mean? Well, it sounds like the Pharisees had this really high standard and Jesus came along and made it higher. But that is not what Jesus did. So let's think about it. What Jesus is going to do is he's actually going to drive it, not higher, deeper. It's a deeper way not a higher way. And this is important because I think it's real easy to think of Jesus as somebody who goes, oh, I got your game. You guys think you're here. Well, I'm really here. Jesus isn't, even, Jesus isn't playing their game. He's playing a completely, he's in a completely different ballgame. What I'm offering now is something completely different. It won't work for you hillsiders who don't want law, and it won't work for you Pharisees who do want law. It's not even the same game. I'm changing the game, Jesus is saying. Answering the question, what's the good life and who's the good person, I'm about to do it different than you've thought about it. I'm about to drive it deeper. Now, you'll understand that if you understand how Jesus, look at what Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees. You'll understand why we say deeper, not higher. When he looks at the scribes and the Pharisees, same group of people, hypocrites, Calls them hypocrites. Why? Because they're clean on the outside. They're like a cup and a plate that gets washed. Only, only on the outside, but not the inside. On the inside, you're still this. You're still greedy, and you're still self-indulgent. You're, you bl you're blind. He says, first, clean the inside. That's what Jesus cares about. That's what the whole Old Covenant cares about, the inside. Then the outside will get clean too. If you guys, if you only clean the outside, then you missed it. Hypocrites. You're like tombs. Outwardly appear beautiful, but within are dead. Outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, full of hypocrisy. It's not a higher standard. It's a deeper one. Do you see that? It's the heart. And the rest of chapter 5, he'll do that. And then, so, so Jesus is going to illustrate, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit here. Let's take the top three he goes right into immediately. He's going to take these three categories. Old Testament rules. And he's going to ask, and he's going to show you how in all three of these and I'm just using the top three here. 
There's, there's a bunch of others we'll look at. How to understand these three. If you're just thinking of Old Testament, you'll have one way of thinking about it. But if you're thinking about what I'm thinking about, it's different. In fact, uh, probably it looks a little bit more like this. The law was only concerned about doing these things. Now listen, none of us are denying that these are unhealthy things. None of us are saying that if society could just abide by these external things, we'd we'd be a whole lot better off. Exactly. The problem is, is that the law only concerned itself with the external act And it couldn't really help me in any way not do these. It offered no power. It was just a rule. It couldn't make me want to do them. It just told me not to do them. And so by the time, so, so let me just show you what's going to happen in this sermon. Uh, let me read a verse to you first that comes toward the end of the, of the sermon itself before you get to the, the two ways and the two trees and all that stuff at the end. That's not really the end of the sermon. It's sort of an epilogue. The end of the sermon is right here. And look how he ends the sermon just like he starts the sermon where we're at right now. Whatever you wish others would do to you, that's how you fulfill, look, What's the law and the prophet? What does the law and the prophets mean? Whole Old Testament. How do you fill the whole thing? How do you fulfill? Now you get to fulfill. How do you do it? Something deeper inside, this desire inside of me of the way humanity ought to be in every single way. It's sort of the golden rule idea. And what it essentially, essentially means is love. When you can love people the way I really want you to love people, and when you can be loved the way I want you to be loved, you will have done it. But here's the problem. The law couldn't, couldn't do that for me. The law couldn't do that for me. And so Jesus identifies two things real quickly here. One is, if you're going to live in Jesus' way, if you're going to come into the kingdom and live Jesus' way, here's the first thing. You're going to know that your problem is the heart. It's not whether or not you did those. Do you see that, first of all? That's a mental shift. By the way, you'll fight it every single day of your Christian life. But the second one is people. People matter more to me than if you just just did this. People matter so much more to me that I need you to treat them in a way that doesn't just exclude these things. I want you to treat them far better than just not killing them. I want you to treat them far better than just not sleeping around on them. And I want you to treat them far better than not just ending a marriage. This is what the law intended, but it could not accomplish. But when Jesus came on the scene, he could begin to talk about a human being who actually could do these and more. They could not only do these. So a lot of people will live their life and be really happy that they haven't done these three things. This is where religion comes in, when you only care about the external. But according to Jesus, according to Jesus, uh, this heart is capable of doing a whole lot more damage before it kills somebody. 
How much damage do you think you've done in your life even though you've never killed a person? How much damage to people have we done even though we've never killed them? We've cursed, demeaned, slandered, withheld love, ignored. We have found a million ways, millions of ways to hurt people before we kill them. If you're just happy you haven't killed them, if they're still breathing in your life, that doesn't make you a good person. That's radical. How about that one? I've never slept with anyone but my wife. Well, good for you, big boy. Let's go in here and check out the uh, inner sanctum. How, how, how have you objectified the opposite sex? Used them for your personal pleasure? How much evil sexually can be done before you cross that line. Jesus really cares about that. And how about this one? Do you realize that literally every month we could do a series on marriage because we treat each other like crap so often in marriage? We'll get to the end of our lives, you know, we never got the big D. We've been impossible to live with. And somehow think we've got to, we're okay. As if God could care less how you talk to each other, how you treat each other, how you live together. All of a sudden, the standard didn't get higher. It just went deeper. But Jesus' whole point is, what I'm going to do is I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write these laws here. If you write that law here, then I, I got to do a whole lot more than not kill you. So what does deeper mean? I'll give you the two things it really means. These are the two things that mean. First of all, the inside is more important than the outside. Do you hear that message? Okay, so think about that, what that means for your spiritual life. There's, a, there's lots of implications for what that means for your spiritual life. If you're only thinking about the big sin that you didn't do, but not all the little things on the inside that are infected and, and, and unhealthy, then you missed it. The second thing is reality over image. Jesus will say it as many times as it can be said in this sermon. And that is, if you're doing this to please others, you miss it. If you think that, you're, that the high view of other people, of your life, is what matters, you'll miss it. If you're only concerned about the outside and not the inside, what will matter to you is your image, not what's really going on in your heart. And if what matters to you is your image and not your heart, then you missed it. God is not interested in having people who simply look good to others. Not interested. So what happens when people come into the kingdom, when they come into the kingdom and they meet Jesus, you meet Jesus. That's what that word says right there. Jesus. You see it? I'm writing with a really fat pen this morning. When you meet him, this is what you become concerned with. A new consciousness. It's not satisfied to just not do these things. There's a new consciousness that goes deeper beneath the surface. Way beyond rules. So Jesus said, uh, if you're not living from here, 
you're not living the good life. You're not even close to it. You're really far from it. That's, this is not the good life. So that answers the first question for human beings. What is the good life? It's a heart change that treats people, that deals with issues long before they get here, values people in here way before they get here. And that's what Jesus means by eternal living now. How do you know you're living an eternal kind of life? A kingdom life. If this is what you're concerned with. So neither approaches work. The reason the people that wanted to live authentically, hoping that they could, their, their hearts weren't changed. They could never authentically live the life. They didn't want an external. They didn't want externals, remember? They don't want externals. There's no external good. I can do what I want. But when you looked inside their heart, they were incapable of being good. And then you have this group. How, how can you be a good person? Well, you can't be a good person without the internal change. So the good life and the good person comes from having your heart changed. And Jesus is saying essentially this, you need me for both. You can't get rid of the standard. I am the standard. You need an external standard. But you can't have your heart changed without me either. You need me for both. Can't be a good person. Can't know the good life. So essentially what Jesus is saying, and this is what he'll say at the end of the sermon, if you obey me, if you follow me, if what I say to you is what matters to you, if you obey it, then you have the good life and you'll be a good person. And so I think uh, Martin Lord Jones is right. God save me from this incredible headache. And you might be feeling the dilemma now. You might be feeling this crushed by the reality that I can't generate internally what I need and, I, and the external laws won't do it. I'm lost. How does he save us from this mess? Well, what Jesus does essentially is this. He floods your heart with love. Uh, he's given himself on our behalf, even though we couldn't keep those laws. He, he did keep them. He didn't need forgiveness. He wasn't subject to the penalty of death. He died with all of our sins on him. Forgiving, healing, changing, replacing, replacing its passions, all of our inner longings. So that I'm inclined, by the end of this sermon, as he said, to love the way he loved me. And enabled me to do it. And when that love from him floods you, he will say through the rest of this sermon, you will not need to condemn other people to look good. I will have loved you too much. You don't have to condemn others. You don't have to constantly be looking for people who just aren't good people. And you don't have to impress them either for significance. You'll be relieved of that. You don't need to rely on wealth for security. I'll spend an entire... I'm gonna, I'm gonna, in fact, Jesus is going to say, I'm about to do a whole sermon on that in chapter 6. You won't need to get anybody back. Like we all have people in our lives. Right now we need to get back. You said, I'm going to relieve you of that. You won't need to be afraid of death. After hearing all that, if you're not messed up, like I'm messed, that's messed up. 
I mean, I'm overwhelmed. I feel guilty. This is how I've always, I bet this is how you've always dreamed other people would live. I wish people would treat me like the way Jesus says in that sermon. I'd love to be treated like that. I'd love to not be objectified. I'd love to have somebody love me in a marriage. I'd love to have somebody not just not kill me, but not despise me. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't wouldn't life be great? In fact, you've demanded that of other people in your life. And yet you can't do it. So if you're feeling crushed today, that's exactly how you should feel. And it is the reason we surrender to Christ. It's the reason we look to him for authority on how to live. So bow your heads. And uh, if that's how you're feeling, if you're just feeling like, man, I, I, I feel like I've messed this up. Well, I hear you. We're all in the same mess. Somebody's got to forgive us for this mess. The harm we've done to ourselves and other people. And yet, you'll find the struggle in your heart to finally just say, okay, I'm no longer going to call the shots about who's, if I'm good or not. I'm going to let Jesus do that. That's essentially what you're saying when you come to Jesus. I will no longer define what is good in my life. He will. And that's a hard surrender. But if you want to do it this morning, you can. He's inviting you. And he will forgive you. He will heal you. He will make, make you want things you've never wanted. But you are not going to do it without him. Father, we hear that today. It is a dilemma. It is two roads. We can pick the road. We can figure it out ourselves, or we can let you do it. One of them will last. One of them isn't. The life you're offering is indestructible, and it is eternal. And I plead with your spirit. to make us want it. In Jesus' name.